Fantasy. A distinguishing feature of myth stories is their fantasy, their dislocation from the everyday rules of the waking world we live in. Young children, apparently universally, delight in fantasy stories full of talking, clothed rabbits, bears, or other animals, also dislocated from anything familiar in their everyday waking experience. Some people suggest that children's delight in fantasy results simply from adults telling them that kind of story. I think there are a number of reasons not to accept this explanation as adequate. First, audiences are not uninfluential in the stories told to them. Children's response plays a significant determining role in the stories adults tell them. If children's understanding were tied to their immediate experience, local environment, and hands-on activities, as is asserted in so many educational textbooks, parents would soon give up telling fantasy stories. In survey of first graders' likes and dislikes in stories, Rogers and Robertson found that while a wide array of stories appealed to various children, they ranked first in preference fairy tale stories that include an animal who could talk, a prince and a princess, and a magic ring. They ranked last real-world accounts of what an astronaut does, a person on TV, and building a bridge. Second, that fantasy has so much in common with myth stories from around the world suggests that something more than parental conditioning is at work. Third, narratives constructed by very young children, in groups or alone, very commonly involve transformation of the home and local environment into fairylands, pirates' islands, or magic realms. The impulse for such fantasy seems inadequately accounted for by a few stories they have heard. Finally, the persistence of various forms of fantasy at every stage of life suggests that it is not some contingent, accidental invention of a few storytellers, but is somehow tied up with profound features of our mental lives. Arthur Appleby advances the traditional argument to explain why young children typically understand and enjoy a story such as Peter Rabbit. Quote, the sort of familiarity which a child demands in a story is often a social one, a doing of things which the child expects to have done. Thus, Peter Rabbit is a manageable story for Carol at two years, eight months, because of its familiar family setting. End quote. This view is pervasive in educational textbooks, and its influence on curriculum is perhaps most clearly evident in social studies. Quote, Thus, kindergarten and first grade students spend a lot of social studies time studying self-awareness and families because these two topics have a sense of relevance and immediacy to young children. End quote. But if it is the familiarity and immediacy of the young child's experience that make content or stories accessible, meaningful, and manageable, one must wonder why Peter is a talking, clothed rabbit. One might wonder also about the wild wood, which is safe, and the cultivated garden, which is dangerous, and the closeness of death, and so on. Why do children so readily accept such inversion of the normal experience of safe gardens and wild woods, or so readily take the rabbit's perspective on these matters, scandalously disregarding theorists who emphasize children's egocentric thinking? That Peter is a rabbit is not incidental. He is simply one of an endless menagerie of fantasy creatures that fill children's favorite stories. So where does the talking rabbit come from? Well, consider the binary opposites. They help the child to gain a linguistic and conceptual control over a very wide range of phenomena. After talking with the cat for a while, for example, the child learns that the animal cannot talk back. It resists wearing clothes, and it certainly doesn't use a knife and fork when eating. Animals, it becomes clear, are in some significant way different from human beings. So we have another binary set, human-animal, constructed. Similarly, children recognize an important difference between things that have been culturally transformed and things that are natural. The child will rarely articulate binary terms like life-death, nature-culture, human-animal, but they are basic discriminations made at a structural level in constructing a sense of the world. What do you get when you apply to these binary structures the mediating procedure that proves so successful in elaborating conceptual control 
over temperature. Hot and cold yield warm, wet and dry yield damp, and life and death yield, well, ghosts, for one thing. Ghosts are to life and death as warm is to hot and cold, or damp is to wet and dry. How about human and animal? Yeti, mermaids, Sasquatch. And how about nature and culture? Well, they are talking rabbits, like Peter. Peter is a natural creature with the cultural characteristics of speech and clothing. Is this the explanation, or a part of the explanation, of fantasy? The product of a technique for gaining greater linguistic and conceptual control over the world overgeneralized to inappropriate concepts? Language names things, sets up categories, conveniently organizes many continuous phenomena in binary structures, elaborates its grasp by mediating between the binary terms, and, because some basic binary oppositions are discrete and have no mediating categories in reality, spins a world of fantasy wherein the technique of conceptual elaboration can play unconfined. If it is, relatively so straightforward, what about those immediately elaborate psychoanalytic explanations of fantasy? If we are to wield Occam's chainsaw, we will cut away explanations, such as those of Jung and Freud, as unnecessarily complex, and go with the simplest adequate one. But of course, none of these explanations escapes a large amount of speculation. What is significant here is the recognition that we also find this universal tendency to fantasy and dislocation in the myths of the world. The suggestive explanation of children's fantasy as a mediating category between profound binary discriminations echoes Levi-Strauss's suggestive explanation for the fantasy and dislocation of myths. One educational implication of this ready engagement with fantasy and dislocation reinforces that made in the previous section. Children's learning does not always proceed in logical progression from a known to an associated unknown content. If such a procedure were dominant, we would have difficulty explaining why very young children seem to grasp wicked witches, star warriors, and talking rabbits so readily, whereas this ready engagement is very simply explained in terms of the binary structuring and mediating procedure described above. Clearly, we do learn many things by making content associations, but that we do so has been taken as an exclusive dogma by curriculum designers. If, to repeat an important point, the binary structuring and mediating procedure is recognized as another route by which children can access knowledge, then some current restrictions on the early curriculum can be safely and beneficially dispensed with. I am thinking particularly, again, of the expanding environments dogma that has, I believe, contributed significantly to the educational impoverishment of so many children. Abstract Thinking It is generally accepted in current educational textbooks that young children are concrete thinkers, and teaching practices and curricula throughout the Western world have been profoundly influenced by this belief. Concrete and abstract are, of course, odd terms to use about the contents of the mind. It isn't a place one would look for concrete, and everything in the mind is in some sense abstract. But we use the terms to signify relative degrees of generality or particularity, and young children are represented as able to deal intellectually with the particular, with what is more immediate to the senses. My point is that the development of language inevitably involves the use of abstractions, and that abstract language, in the everyday rather vague sense of the term, is no less common in young children than is concrete thinking. Quote, language creates distance between the self and the object. Language generalizes, transferring a unique perception into a common one. Language transmutes realities into abstractions. End quote. That is the sense in which language necessarily involves the mind in dealing with abstractions. More profoundly, it has been argued that abstract ideas do not grow as a result of encountering concrete objects. Rather, only by the development of abstractions do concrete objects become recognizable. 
Quote, in our conscious experience, or introspectively, concrete particulars occupy a central place and the abstractions appear to be derived from them. But this subjective experience appears to me to be the source of the error with which I am concerned. The appearance which prevents us from recognizing that these concrete particulars are the product of abstractions which the mind must possess in order that it should be able to experience particular sensations, perceptions, or images. End quote. A feature of young children's fairy stories, as noted above, is that they are structured on binary opposites. An evident feature of these binary opposites is that they are immensely abstract concepts. Further, children's access to particulars like Darth Vader, wicked monsters, or talking rabbits comes by means of the abstract concepts they body forth or give concrete form to, a point that seems to illustrate Hayek's argument. The prevalence of the view that young children are concrete thinkers has obscured the sense in which they are also, obviously, abstract thinkers. For example, if abstractions like oppression, resentment, revolt, and their relationships were not in place in some form by age four, the typical child would be unable to understand the story of Robin Hood and the Sheriff of Nottingham, or Luke Skywalker and Darth Vader. This does not mean that the child typically articulates the words oppression, resentment, and revolt, or even could define them, but such concepts have to be a part of the child's understanding of events, whose meaning turns on grasping them and their relational dynamics. They need not be conscious or even subconscious, but may be better thought of in Hayek's sense as superconscious, because they govern the conscious processes without appearing in them. Hayek suggests that what we mean by abstractions might be better thought of as operations of the mind, rather than as concepts. Abstractions become conscious, become concepts, as a result of the mind's reflecting on itself. The formation of abstract concepts, then, is not the outcome of some conscious process, but rather the discovery of something that already has guided the mind's operations. So the absence of awareness of abstractions in young children, or their lack of articulation of, or ability to manipulate, abstractions, is not a sign that abstractions are not at work in their thinking, any less than in the typical adults. The absence signifies only that they have not reflected on their thinking, or are not aware of their thinking in such a way that they consciously deal with the abstractions they use all the time. So the later appearance of abstractions in our language development is not a result of genetically following the concrete, but represents discoveries of our long active mental operations by reflection on them. If we look to the evolutionary, archaeological, and historical record, we find similar conclusions. Earlier, it had been believed that language must have developed and been elaborated in Aboriginal cultures around practical, concrete activities like tool-making and food preparation, and then gradually was found useful in more elaborate forms of social discourse, leading in relatively recent times to the complexity of myth. But as Donald has persuasively argued, practical skills are passed on largely by apprenticeship, in which language is typically of little importance. In tribal societies, and from what we can infer from upper Paleolithic cultures, quote, the most elevated use of language is in the area of mythic invention in the construction of conceptual models of the human universe. Even in the most primitive human societies, where technology has remained essentially unchanged for tens of thousands of years, there are always myths of creation and death, and stories that serve to encapsulate tribally held ideas of origin and world structure. These uses were not late developments, after language had proven itself, in concrete, practical applications. They were among the first." End quote. What Donald writes about Aboriginal human cultures seems to me reflected in children's development of language today. His characterization of mythic peoples, and consequently all who came after them, is that they are constantly modeling the world and storing the results. 
so too do children. The integrative symbolic mythic models that are being constantly constructed drive the development of linguistic forms to express them. The driving force in this process is not concrete particulars, but a new kind of understanding, a new, much more powerful method of thinking. We still know very little about how human beings develop, and each of us individually develops language, but neither process can sensibly be described in terms of moving from the concrete to the abstract. It seems, as Donald also notes, that it is more likely to be analogous to our perceptual processes that begin with some holistic impression within which concrete details are then located. On entering a room, for example, we do not build up an impression of it by composition of all the particulars into some whole. Rather, we initially form an impression of the whole, and then we locate particulars within it. Whether we describe children's early conceptualizations as abstractions, or the superconscious, or integrative myth, or as gestalts, the kind of thinking is fundamentally tied into symbolic models of the world children constantly construct and reconstruct. Concrete particulars have meaning only within these models. That children do not express the background symbolic models does not mean that the symbolism is not there, or that it is not primary in the children's understanding. Given the looseness of match between these complex conceptual processes and the crude terms we use to refer to them, it seems reasonable to keep the term abstract to refer to a fundamental part of children's everyday thinking. It is useful to note in passing that, quote, developmental researchers have been accruing impressive evidence that even toddlers can appreciate quite abstract qualities in the world, ranging from numerosity to animateness to various kinds of causality, end quote. Gardner cites Carey and Gelman's work, his own study of the unschooled mind, and Keel's study showing that very young children will sometimes override strong perceptual or concrete cues in favor of abstract properties. A major support for the view of young children as concrete thinkers has come from Piaget's developmental theory. There are many grounds on which the validity of Piaget's position might be questioned. But regardless of how persuasive such arguments may be, a much stronger point is relevant here. Piaget's theory, and its extensions in more recent neo-Piagetian research, deals only with a limited range of children's thinking. It focuses on what has been called logico-mathematical thinking, or essentially numerical competence. Even when the object of study is dreams, play, or more recently, emotions or art, the researchers locate their central concern, quote, in the human sensitivity to number, numbers, and numerical relations, end quote. Gardner goes as far as to conclude, he admits slightly exaggeratedly, that Piaget's major achievement, quote, was the development of a deep understanding of what it means for a creature to be numerate, and his view of human development centered upon the capacity of our species to achieve sophisticated knowledge about numbers, or number, end quote. The problem for education has come from the generally uncritical acceptance of Piaget's theory as a description of the totality of children's thinking. There is no good reason to believe that what may be true about the development of number competence is also true of metaphorical competence, or that what may be the case about logical mathematical thinking is also true of the imagination. Indeed, there are good reasons to believe otherwise. Sensitive attention to children's thinking makes clear that their thinking routinely includes metaphysical speculation and philosophical reflection of a highly abstract kind. So while notions of abstractness and concreteness in thinking are imprecise, the currently prevailing view that young children's thinking is restricted to the concrete is clearly inadequate. Children's patent deployment of powerful abstractions calls aloud for us to reconsider claims about the concreteness of children's thinking and to reconsider the influence such claims have had on teaching and curricula for young children. The belief that young children are generally concrete thinkers has meant shunning content 
that seems to involve abstractions, instead focusing on active doing and practical manipulation that has made the typical elementary classroom less intellectually rich than it should be. Children can have ready access to all kinds of knowledge, provided it is articulated on the kinds of powerful abstractions that they clearly use, even if they do so superconsciously. Peter Rabbit, we can see, is engaging and meaningful to young children, not only because of the family setting, but also because of a narrative structured on abstract, binary concepts of security danger, wildness cultivation, life-death, nature-culture, obedience-disobedience, and also on abstract motives, intentions, hopes, and fears familiar to children. The emphasis on active manipulation is, of course, important in certain areas of learning, but its current overemphasis results from, and further encourages, the underestimating of young children's ability to grasp meaning by other than logico-mathematical means. Consider a simple example in mathematics, in which one might expect views derived from Piaget to be more valid. Let us draw on the observations above to teach the concept of place value, or decimalization, to young children. How might we go about this task if we believe that children can readily grasp new knowledge when it is structured on powerful abstract binary concepts? Once upon a time, a king and queen wanted to count their army. They had six counselors, five of whom were pompous and unimaginative, and one of whom was humble but ingenious. We have then our binary structure, unimaginative, ingenious. These are chosen because they are familiar to children, and we want them to associate the ingenuity of mathematics with something they recognize within themselves. The army is milling around on a plane, as armies do, before going off to battle. Each of the unimaginative counselors recommends an ineffective method of counting the army. Eventually, the royal pair turns to the ingenious counselor. He has the king and queen order each of the unimaginative counselors to pick up ten stones. The unimaginative counselors are then required to stand behind a table, side by side, each with a bowl in front of him. The army then marches in line past the table. As each soldier goes by, the counselor at the end of the table puts a stone in his bowl. When ten soldiers have gone by, and all his stones are in the bowl, he picks up the ten stones, and again puts one stone back in the bowl for each soldier who goes by. The counselor next to him has only to watch the first counselor. Each time the first counselor picks up his ten stones, the second unimaginative counselor puts one stone into his bowl. When the second counselor has put all ten of his stones into the bowl, he picks them up and starts again. The third counselor's job is simply to watch the second counselor's bowl. Each time the second counselor picks up his ten stones out of the full bowl, the third counselor puts one stone into his bowl, and so on. After some time, when the army has gone by, the fifth counselor has one stone in his bowl, the fourth counselor has three stones in his bowl, the third counselor has seven stones in his bowl, and the second counselor has eight stones, and the first counselor has two. So the ingenious counselor is able to tell the king and queen that they have exactly 13,782 soldiers in their army. After the story, which teachers can elaborate, the children might be invited to use this method to count each other, with two counters and the rest as soldiers marching by, or to count other more numerous objects. They could then try to use this method with bases other than ten, and so on. Having used this example in the past, I have sometimes had teachers respond that they are glad that I have the children involve themselves in using this method hands-on, because it is that active doing that makes it meaningful to them and drives home the lesson. One teacher recently elaborated the point, saying that she had studied the U.S. Civil War when at school, learned the importance of the Battle of Gettysburg, learned Lincoln's address by heart, but it wasn't until recently when she visited the battlefield that it all became meaningful to her, and the hairs on the back of her neck had tingled. It was being there, being physically involved with the place, that made all the book learning meaningful. I suggested that Gettysburg is a field like other fields. What made it neck-tingling for this teacher was the book-learned history she had remembered, 
the significance it held for her in the story of America's formation. What makes place value meaningful to the children is the story of the counselor's ingenuity with which children can associate. The practical activities later clarify, extend, and reinforce what they have gathered from the story. Each feeds the other. Current dogma asserts that the practical activity is crucial, to the point that other intellectual capacities that children have for grasping meaning are depreciated. I think the practical activity is certainly useful, but it can best support meaningful learning in a context of powerful abstractions. It is within the abstract context that the concrete content makes sense. The story structure allows the children to associate emotionally with the ingenuity of the clever counselor's successful strategy. The mathematical skill is thus not learned as an alien algorithm. It becomes, in some significant sense, theirs. The emotional tie to the cleverness of mathematics is another crucial feature of learning, little regarded in current early educational orthodoxy. More generally, the pervasive influence of the ideas of the young child as learning best and first how to do, and of being a concrete thinker, along with the considerable focus on logical mathematical thinking, has had a peculiar and destructive effect on early education. Enormous emphasis has been placed on those intellectual skills that young children manage least well and develop only slowly, computational, logical, mathematical skills, with an equivalent neglect of what children do best, metaphoric, imaginative thinking. The result is a curriculum and teaching practices aimed at and drawing on what are taken as young children's poor intellectual abilities rather than on their early development of capacities that come with learning language. We should focus our pedagogical attention, that is, on those areas in which young humans are evolutionarily predisposed to rapid and powerful learning, where, to put it in terms of theorists I find increasingly persuasive, specific mental modules are operative. So while concrete thinking is what is especially evident in young children, if we focus on the explicit content of their conscious articulation, this content seems meaningful to young children in the degree to which it is tied to some powerful abstractions. Without connection to some abstract underpinnings or superconscious operations, the concrete content or practical manipulations remain contextless and more generally meaningless. This seems the common fate of so much early classroom activity. Children commonly, in T.S. Eliot's line, had the experience but missed the meaning. In teaching and curriculum planning, then, we might still hold to the principle that our understanding moves from the known to the unknown, but we would do well to think of the known in terms of powerful abstractions and the unknown as anything that can be tied to them. When we begin to think of telling or teaching children something, we might sensibly begin with what set of binary abstractions it can be built on. This will likely be, especially after nearly a century of emphasizing children's intellectual incapacity, their concreteness, and the necessity for practical manipulation. Metaphor. Metaphor, like myth, has long been a puzzle to scholars. Those of a positivist inclination have tended to sweep it under the academic rug deeming it a linguistic frill that can always be reduced to the kind of literal language with which they are more at home. The last sentence is, of course, awash with metaphors, inclination, sweeping under rugs, frills, reduction, literal, at home with, all involve metaphor. I could have written, positivist ignored metaphor because it entailed no features not reducible to literal language. That would reduce, but certainly not eliminate, the metaphoric load. Does it say the same thing? How would one reduce Yeats's reference to the rag and bone shop of the heart? Could one produce a literal equivalent in which the cluttered, discarded, disjointed, rubbishy features of a rag and bone shop refer to the condition of his emotional life in old age? If we could reduce such phrases to literal equivalents, why is metaphor so pervasive? Let us begin with the claim that metaphor is a product of language development, and will therefore be evident in mythic thinking and in young children. Ernst Cassirer has pointed to the relationship of myth and language, arguing that, quote, no matter how widely the contents of myth and language may differ, 
yet the same form of mental conception is operative in both. It is the form which one may denote as metaphorical thinking. End quote. He points out that since the time of Roman grammarian Quintilian, it has been taken for granted that all mythic thinking is permeated by metaphor. Levi Strauss has suggested that, quote, metaphor is not a later embellishment of language, but it is one of its fundamental modes, a primary form of discursive thought. End quote. Whatever we make of the somewhat speculative claims about metaphors being a visible expression of a kind of root of language, the prominence of metaphor in mythic thinking is undeniable. Do we see anything similar in young children as they develop language? Consider the following scenario. A five-year-old boy has been selling juice at the front step on a hot day, along with his four-year-old sister and three-year-old brother. Their last customer, a telephone repairman, after gratefully downing his ten-cent glass of orange juice, asked jokingly whether they didn't have any beer or scotch. After he left, the five-year-old went into the house and asked his mother whether he could have some beer and scotch for the stand. He emerged a minute or so later, shrugged, and told his siblings, Mom killed that idea. The three-year-old has no more difficulty interpreting the meaning of the sentence than the four-year-old. Both know that they cannot have beer and scotch. Whether they have heard or used the metaphor of killing an idea before, they know it now without any explanation, and they understand this kind of metaphoric usage as an entirely normal form of speech. Such naturalistic observations do not seem to require empirical studies to support the conclusion that very young children use metaphor easily and frequently, but empirical studies can perhaps help clarify the process of metaphoric development. Winner has reported an extensive series of studies of the genesis and growth of metaphoric competence. Among the early and to the experimenters, more unexpected findings was the prodigal production of metaphors by some very young children. Also, in comparative tests of recognizing appropriate metaphors, it was discovered that the, quote, highest number of appropriate metaphors was secured from the preschool children who even succeeded college students. Moreover, these three- and four-year-olds fashioned significantly more appropriate metaphors than did children aged seven or eleven, end quote. Most intriguing was, quote, the capacity of at least some children to perform this game at an astonishingly high level. Not only do such youngsters frequently contrive clever names for the very objects which have stumped our adult pilot subjects, more dramatically, some of them can nearly effortlessly come up with a whole series of appropriate and appealing metaphoric meanings, end quote. Metaphor in its grossest appearance involves talking about something in terms derived from something quite different. It is a deviant naming or peculiar predication and establishes a new relationship between heterogeneous ideas in a way that adds something to or throws new light on the thing talked about. Metaphors do not so much work by recognizing similarities between things. Rather, quote, it would be more illuminating to say that metaphor creates the similarity than to say it formulates some similarity antecedently existing. End quote. It is the generative power evident in metaphor that makes it particularly interesting to this educational scheme. The ready use of metaphor gives evidence of the human generativity that is central to learning. Consequently, young children's fluency in and recognition of metaphor is something educators should find centrally important. Expansion of understanding seems often to ride on the kind of generative grasp one finds exemplified in metaphor, and that again follows a logic quite different from the content associations so prominent in educational textbooks. As Nelson Goodman puts it, quote, far from being a mere matter of ornament, metaphor participates fully in the process of knowledge, in replacing some stale natural kinds with novel and illuminating categories, in contriving facts and revising theory, and in bringing us new worlds, end quote. In the beginning, metaphor, quote, governs both the growth of language and our acquisition of it, end quote. End quote, Metaphorical use of language differs in significant ways from literal use, 
but is no less comprehensible, no more recondite, no less practical, and no more independent of truth and falsity than his literal use. End quote. We might add to this Max Black's perhaps overly neat claim that all sciences begin in metaphor and end in algebra. So for any maker, whether poet or scientist, it would seem that Aristotle's observation is just, quote, the greatest thing by far is to have a command of metaphor, end quote. The generative side of metaphor is crucial to recognize because, quote, ordinary words convey only what we already know. It is from metaphor that we can best get hold of something fresh, end quote. The social and educational importance of developing the capacity for metaphor relies both on the empowerment of the individual and on the notion that, quote, the quality of any culture is in large part the quality of metaphorists that it creates and sustains, end quote. My urge to pile up authorities on the importance of metaphor is caused by the paucity of attention currently paid to it in educational research and educational writing, compared to that given to logical mathematical forms of thinking. Perhaps metaphor is less a simple consequence of language and more a cognitive capacity implicated in language development itself. This claim, essentially Cassirer's, is somewhat speculative. What is not speculative is the pervasiveness of metaphor in all language use, its prominence in linguistic behavior of various young children and its centrality to the generative functions of the human mind. Especially if one holds a constructivist view of learning, a view of the child's mind as not simply copying impressions from the world, but as constantly constructing and reconstructing an individual conception of the world, then metaphor becomes a key tool in aiding flexible, productive learning. Metaphor is sometimes represented as a kind of opposite to logic, but it is perhaps worth emphasizing that the two are far from discrete in our thinking. Kasserer makes the point that metaphor is one implication of language development, but that language carries with it the further implication of logic. As we become increasingly conscious of language, and the most potent instrument for increasing awareness of language has been writing, logic becomes more prominent. We see the network of logical relationships implicit in language, and can begin to make them explicit, because by understanding them, we can gain more secure pragmatic control over the world that language tries to grasp. Metaphor develops earlier and more easily than logic, both historically and in our individual experience. Metaphor and logic represent points on a continuum of language uses. In any productive, generative thinking, we are likely to find the two at their somewhat distinct but properly cooperative work. Lakoff and Johnson's assertion that metaphor unites reason and imagination, and metaphor is thus imaginative rationality, may be somewhat arcane. It does, however, capture the sense in which metaphor is not some logicless rambling but a vitally productive feature of our constructive thinking. It also echoes Wordsworth's observation of nearly two centuries earlier that imagination is reason in her most exalted mood. These observations about metaphor, along with the findings, surprising to some, that young children's production and grasp of metaphor are commonly superior to that of older children and adults, points again to a neglected conclusion about young children's thinking. In the past, children's thinking has been assumed, even presupposed, to be unqualifiedly inferior to that of adults. All of the theories of intellectual development we have, and most influentially Piaget's, take current adult forms of thinking as a kind of ideal, with children's development being measured according to the degree that it approximates the adult forms. In Piaget's case, this reflected the biological metaphor undergirding his psychological theorizing. Thus, the adult was taken as the completed form, and the earlier immature forms were simply stages toward it. Such theories as Piaget's are hierarchically integrative, that is, later stages encompass the achievements of the earlier stages. They recognize only gains in cognitive competence, not losses. In particular, they do not recognize that in recapitulating the process of Western intellectual development, 
children may be paying an intellectual cost that we as a civilization have paid. But so long as this cost goes unrecognized, we can't ask whether it is worthwhile or necessary. Metaphoric capacity, in some respects, declines as children become older. Synapse development peaks in humans between nine months and two years, at which point the brain has 50% more synapses than the adult. Metabolic activity in the brain reaches adult levels by nine or ten months and soon exceeds it, peaking around age four. Massive numbers of neurons die in utero, and the dying continues during the early years, leveling off at about seven years. Synapses wither from the age of two through the rest of childhood and into adolescence, when the brain's metabolic rate falls back to adult levels. Pinker infers from such observations that language development, then, could be on a maturational timetable, like teeth. Given the close connection between language development and metaphor, and the importance of fluent and flexible metaphoric control for nearly all forms of thinking, it would be prudent to emphasize support for metaphoric fluency in early education. If we could devise a developmental profile of individuals' metaphoric capacities in Western societies, it would certainly not follow the triumphantly progressive pattern of current theories of psychological development. So we might wisely recognize that Western intellectual development has involved, and involves for us individually, some losses. That in some regard, young children's intelligences, young children's intelligences are less constrained and are more competent than those of their typical adult teachers. What we need to sort out then, if we are to get a clear grasp of mythic understanding, is those important intellectual functions in which children are typically superior to adults. Then we must decide what on earth we are to do about them. If, for an overly crude example, some degree of metaphoric fluency and imaginative vivacity is necessarily to be sacrificed for literacy, what should be done? Well, this is too gross and dramatic an example, of course, but it brings out precisely the kind of trade-off that I think is a part of education. We will always want to preserve as much as possible and lose as little as possible, but the current bland and comfortable belief that any skill gain comes at no cost, at no potential loss, just cannot any longer be sustained. If we fail to recognize potential or actual intellectual losses, we will certainly be able to do nothing to minimize them, and this is, I think, precisely the situation we are in losing much more than we need because we do not recognize what is at risk. A further constituent of mythic understanding, then, is metaphor, and the richer and more flexible the metaphoric capacity, the greater its potential contribution to early understanding. Metaphor is one of our cognitive grappling tools. It enables us to see the world in multiple perspectives and to engage with the world flexibly. Metaphor is much more profoundly a feature of human sense-making than the largely ornamental and redundant poetic trope some have taken it to be. Quote, Thought is metaphoric and proceeds by comparison, seeing one thing in terms of another, and the metaphors of language derive therefrom. The connection between the apparently distinct topics of binary structuring and metaphor, however, tends, like any analysis, to suggest inappropriate divisions in something that is better conceived as an organic whole.